The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at TNTradio.live. TNT Radio. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Connecting the Dots for our third segment. I'm very, very happy to be joined by my friend and the excellent Lawrence Freeman, an Africa expert with 40 years experience working on the continent of Africa uh, with a deep, profound insight into political intelligence operations as well, which has given him a very important edge to understand how Africa has artificially been kept um, underdeveloped and at war with itself in many ways over the course of many years, despite billions of dollars having been given under the World Bank, IMF, decades and decades have passed with money being given, but no real qualitative uh, freedom or economic sovereignty for the nations on that continent. Many people are confused by that. Uh, Many people think, oh, maybe the Africans, including many Africans themselves, have been brainwashed by this belief that maybe they're just not culturally capable of governing themselves or whatever. It's it's really it's a lie. There are arsonists, saboteurs that have been working and refining their skills of sabotage of the good for a long time. Lawrence has mapped out a lot of these elements in a very, very clear degree, which is why I'm very happy to have him on today to discuss Africa and the world. How are you doing, Larry? Oh, it's a little cold down here. I'm doing well. Yeah, waiting for that global warming to kick in. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> Sooner the better. What I would like to. Yeah, right. <laughs> what I would like to do uh, today, uh, for a lot of people listening, they may not have thought too deeply or critically about the nature of Africa as a strategic battlefront for humanity as a whole. Um, you, uh, like I said, you've written enormously. You have a website, Lawrence Freeman, Africa and the world.com, which is a wonderful website that you keep updated. You give a lot of, a lot of talks as an expert from the West to speak and you speak on different Nigerian, Ethiopian news. Um, what is the purpose? Why should people care right now about the role of Africa in the broader um, battle over what the new system is going to look like? Well, think about it. Uh, it's good to be with you today, Matt. If you look at, if you look ahead, the projections are that around 2050, which is not that far from now, less than two generations or so, you're going to have the majority uh, concentration of population in the world it's going to be on the African continent. So you're talking about in 27 years, Africa is projected to have about two and a half billion people uh, as a whole. It's 54, 55 countries. They're estimated to have about a, a billion young people, 35 and under as they characterize it, and the largest labor force as a continent of any other uh, pop, uh, country in the world. Nigeria will be the third largest country, be more populated than the United States, uh, over 400 million during this projection. And therefore, anybody who's thinking clearly knows right now that the center of politics, the center of commerce, the center of trade uh, is going to be revolving around this continent, which is estimated to be about one-fourth of the world's population by that time. If we had if we were intelligent in the West, which is not our, our strong point, we would realize that we would be making massive investments now in infrastructure and infrastructure-related projects. Because if you don't, what are you going to do with two and a half billion people if there's not food, if there's not housing, if there's not jobs? Mm-hmm. 
So unfortunately, we're not looking clearly, though everybody involved in thinking about the future knows Africa will be the center. We don't really have a very thoughtful approach to how we're going to handle that. Mm -hmm. And it seems like when there are thoughtful approaches on how to handle that, there are um, saboteurs and arsonists who tend to try to like break it up, whether it's the discussion for the the uh, the Junglai Canal to harness the uh, the 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 blue and white Nile that was advocated at different times by leaders within Sudan that was broken up by the uh, the destructive forces of Susan Rice and other Rhodes scholars who wanted to 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 break up Sudan into a uh, factionalized north and south, or whether it's in the case of Abiy Ahmed in Ethiopia, who tried, who has tried and worked very, very, very hard to build up things like a functional hydroelectric uh, base of the Grand Renaissance Dam. Could you say a little bit something about the strategy right now and the importance of Ethiopia, the Grand Renaissance Dam, and some of the fights around the Horn of Africa? Well, start from one standpoint. You have uh, on the Horn of Africa, you have the Red Sea. It leads into the Gulf of Eden and into the Indian Ocean. This is uh, the one of the largest trading routes uh, in the world in terms of not only Africa, not only in terms of the neighboring nations on both sides of the water, but globally. And therefore, if you were thinking clearly, one would develop this area because it's a, a, of a great strategic importance. Now, militarily, Several countries have recognized this, and you have six, six military bases from six countries in Djibouti, this tiny little country of under maybe 500,000 to a million people. But Ethiopia is the powerhouse. It's the economic powerhouse of the Horn of Africa. The Horn refers to Djibouti, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. And then East Africa includes Sudan and and Kenya and so forth. So you have, right now, you have a couple hundred million people. Population is going to expand. Ethiopia has about 120 million people. They're projected to increase the population to 150 million in the next generation or so. But they have uh, pushed forward very aggressively on economic development and particular infrastructure as what we call sometimes it's not a great term, underdeveloped nation, maybe emerging nation is a better term. They have uh, pushed what we would call in the U.S., they've punched above their weight. They established in 2016-18 a electric, electrified train from Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, to Djibouti, the port along the Red Sea. No other uh, sub-Saharan country has done that. And now they're nearing completion, maybe a year or two away from the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which will be the largest dam in Africa, and will bring in 5,150 megawatts of power. These kinds of accomplishments, aside from other road developments in other areas, show a very strong commitment to economic progress and understanding the role of infrastructure. But there's very complicated histories, as you were referring to, because all the nations of Africa, uh, except for Ethiopia, and then Liberia is a very unique case, they all were colonized. And even all the nations around Ethiopia were colonized. So there are long-standing uh, operations that have been run in these countries, 
And Ethiopia is unique, but it's in an environment which is still very contentious. Uh, for example, Eritrea uh, was a colony of the Italians, became a protectorate of the British, became a colony of Ethiopia, and then there was a separation in uh, 1993 uh, from Ethiopia. Then there was a war between Ethiopia and Eritrea in 1998. So all these historical uh, factors come into play. But right now, Ethiopia has raised a question, put on the table, so to speak. Can we get access, long-term agreements to a port on the Red Sea? Because our country is growing, our population is growing. And if we have a port on the Red Sea, we can make long-term investments, which will advance all of the countries of the region. If we don't do that, then our growing population is not going to have the opportunities to expand and export import at the level necessary to sustain us. And that could cause, uh, could be basis of instability. From my standpoint, mm -hmm. that's a cogent argument. Absolutely. And it, I mean, for such a, a country, a massive country, as you pointed out, well over 100 million people, 120, 130 million people uh, being landlocked uh, is is very, very, very dangerous, especially when you have uh, so much instability and the potential, the, the fact that there's electrified rail that could be a driving force and should be and pro hopefully will be a driving force for a transcontinental railway extending across the Dakar as, as the Africa Union uh, put forth in their agenda 2063. That's very hopeful and very, very optimistic for a driving force of industrial activity that's never been permitted. But, but there's a lot of messaging I'm, I'm encountering in the Canadian press, in international media, talking about Abdi Ahmed's uh, threat to, um, or the danger of his going in militarily to invade Eritrea and uh, take control of their ports. Now, this is something being cooked up. Is, is there such a danger? Is there a danger of war between Ethiopia and Eritrea? Or what's going on? There, This uh, issue is now, as you said, it's been uh, revved up in the media and has a couple different facets to it. As I said, there, <clears throat> Ethiopia is landlocked, as you've mentioned. And landlocked countries, they estimate their GDP or GMP is about 20% less than it could be if they had access to ports. So Ethiopia doesn't have access to a port. It uses Djibouti, which is the most expensive port in the world. Uh, it's almost $2 billion charged against the Ethiopian economy. So it's very expensive. And it may not even be able to handle all the traffic if Ethiopia really revs up its economy. So they're looking for a port. Their potentials in Somali, Somalia, potentials in Somalia land, which is not recognized as a nation, and Eritrea. And this issue of having the access to a port has led to all kinds of uh, threats, innuendos, and rumors of this, this is Abi, Abi's policy is going to lead to war. Now, all the actions of war would be absolutely horrible for this region. I mean, any talk of war, any inkling of war, Ethiopia just finished a two-year war which several hundred thousand Ethiopians died. So you don't even want to discuss war, but yet many people are openly suggesting that because of uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmad raising these questions, 
he's done it in a way they allege that really indicates, according to them, that he wants to take these ports. He wants a conflict. Uh, and he made very clear, he addressed the parliament of his own country about a week and a half ago. And he said very openly, we have no desire to invade. We have no desire to take anything. We want to work out an arrangement. And the government, as I understand in my conversations with them, they want to have a transactional relations, maybe have a 50 to 100 year lease, uh, work out some compensating uh, monetary arrangements, maybe shares of Ethiopian Airlines, shares of the Gerd Dam. But there's no desire to have a conflict. So first you have all kinds of Western and other and papers in the region saying we're going to have a war, but there's no substantiation. There's articles that say we have from unnamed sources that were in a private meeting with Abi Ackman mm -hmm. where he said this or that. We see reports of rumors of militarized forces on the border. Rumors, mm -hmm. unsubstantiated reports. All of this is circulating around. And there's a lot of historical antagonism because Eritrea was mm -hmm. part of Ethiopia. They worked together at one point to overthrow the government of the dirge in 1991. And then after that, some conflicts arose. So there's very heated passions, but people are not thinking. They don't think, and this is what is frustrating for me because put aside the history. It's real, but you sometimes have to put it aside. What's the future gonna look like? What are you gonna do with several hundred million people? Ethiopia could yeah. provide physical economy to help these populations. It's in their interest of all the nations to help settle this issue in a peaceful negotiation between sovereign nations. Now the tip off uh, that to me, that an operation was being run is I was watching all these headlines with rumors and innuendos. And then all of a sudden, the new series of accusations come in. Abi Ahmed is really following in the footsteps of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin as authoritarian leaders of the nation. So once I saw that, that this is now being put in the context of geopolitical zero-sum game from the West, then for, for me as a, and for others who study geopolitics, this became very clear. Somebody is trying to destabilize this area. And that is very dangerous. Absolutely. You know, it's important to look at the fingerprints of empire. There's certain trapping, certain formulae that are not that creative, but not so easy to identify if you don't know what to look for. And so by just sort of seeing the MO, you, you could sort of see that there's a common uh, thread tying this together. And it's very similar to the type of paranoia that a lot of Taiwanese have had being fed National Endowment for Democracy funded propaganda over decades and decades to convince them that uh, the Chinese are some other species or other race than the Taiwanese Chinese and that they have to prepare to go to war, defend themselves with the help of the U.S. military industrial complex. Let's take a little bit of a break and uh, go for some, we'll listen to a couple of sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to follow this thread a little bit more deeply.
You should hear what Chris Smith is talking about. Lomborg has long maintained that wealth and an abundance of energy sources are the key elements required to help the world solve threats to our existence, which is why he opposes the obscene amounts of money the United States, the UK, Europe and Australia are spending on climate change, which can only reduce that wealth and make us all weaker. Yes, climate has costs, but so do climate policies. We rarely talk about the fact that as we are making more and more climate policies, that also impacts us negatively. That actually pulls away resources from us. Just to take a look at energy prices here in the UK, energy prices have been coming down for the last two centuries, but now they're starting to go up because of climate policy. But why doesn't the mainstream media's political class ask those correct questions when politicians make humongous spending announcements on, for instance, renewable power? Where are the right questions? Like, what's the cost-benefit analysis of this project minister? They never ask the question. And you know why they don't ask the question? Because the left-leaning mainstream media, they're climate change evangelists as well. They don't want to find holes in such grand renewable plans because that's not part of the environmental narrative. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. <laughs> My baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those beans smell heavenly. Mm-hmm. Give mom a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay. Smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. If you're still wearing a cloth or surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we are back with Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. I'm still joined here with my guest, Lawrence Freeman. We've been talking about Ethiopia, Africa more generally, and fire starters, arsonists. Um, Lawrence, there is a question here that I was just thinking about as you were speaking about uh, the, the leadership of Eritrea. Now, Abiy Ahmed had gotten the Nobel Prize in, I think, 2018 for having uh, brokered a peace deal with Eritrea. There had been a lot of hostility over the years before that. Um, is the leadership falling for this propaganda? Are they falling for the traps as we see with some of the leadership inside of Taiwan falling for the the trap and acting like stooges for the U.S. military industrial complex? Or are they wiser and do they recognize that uh, they have a vital uh, connected self-interest with Ethiopia's well-being? That's a good question. The Eritrea, just to make that point clear, they, they officially... Uh, separated from Ethiopia in 1993. And then they had what I would think was an actually meaningless war in 1998 to 2000. A lot of people died for no good reason. When Abiy Ahmed became the prime minister in 2018, he went to Eritrea and he agreed to a uh, settlement on land 
who owned what land going back to that war of 1998. So he said, we accept your, your, your land commission to Isaiah, the president of Eritrea. And for that, he got the Nobel Peace Prize. And all indications were that they were going to move forward in a closer relationship, including Somalia. Uh, Abiy Ahmed went to Somalia. So that's three countries uh, that were talking about forming some kind of federation to work together. Mm -hmm. uh, then immediately after, very shortly, you had the war in uh, northern Ethiopia, which is also has a whole long history between the Eritreans and the northern part of Ethiopia, Tigray. And that is still uh, not completely settled today. So the mm. positive momentum from 2018 got off track by the war. I've seen no statements, official statements or comments from the Eritrea government that are backing up these inflammatory uh, accusations. On the other hand, there probably is a certain amount of caution because of uh, past historical differences between the nations. Ma, so it, it, there probably is some concern, especially because people are trying to fan the flame so much, but nowhere near uh, the kind of accusations and allegations that are being made by the press. And again, if you think about it, if, if you were running a, a nation or a part of a political uh, group of nations, you would look at the Horn of Africa and you'd say, well, look, if we can increase trade and production and raise the standard of living of all these countries by working together economically, that would bring stability, that would bring peace. So why are you getting these kinds of attacks, which are also now coming from the Western press, uh, saying that there's going to be war? So why, why, does, why would someone even propose that? because they don't want peace, because they don't want stability. They don't want to actually have parts of Africa where African nations govern themselves on sovereign principle and improve the economic standard of living of the people. And this has never been a concern of the West. The, as I've mentioned many times, the last president uh, who did show such a concern was John F. Kennedy who just a couple of days ago celebrated the 60th anniversary of his assassination. But outside of Kennedy, mm. there's been no president who really wants to see the nations of African, nations of Africa work together to become sovereign uh, entities, which means sovereignty means economic development. If you're not supplying the people with jobs and income and electricity and food, you're not going to be able to construct the country properly. So there's a very, very suspicious what's going on, and there's a lot of mm -hmm. passions, heated passions coming from various Ethiopians, from Eritreans, and from others. And I keep trying to make a very clear point. Stop reacting. Don't react to what you're seeing in the media. Think. Is, is it mm -hmm. in your benefit to have an economic developing nation, emerging nation, have an access to a port that would improve the economies of all the nations in the region. Think about the future. Is this what we want 20 to 40 years from now? And get rid of all this other nonsense. But therefore, you know, you, you look at the history. I know the history of Africa parts of it very well. You look at the predicates, you have the history, you know the terrain from being there. 
So you develop a, a, a political sense. My, I call it my political nose. I see something going on over there and it makes no sense to me. And I have to look at it and look at it, try to figure it out. And then you see the accusations coming in that Abi is really following in the footsteps of Putin and Xi Jinping. And then it sort of all becomes clear at a certain point. This is a nasty operation. Since Abiy Ahmed uh, has worked very hard, and, and Ethiopia is the, again, to restate, it's the it's the location of the Africa Union headquarters. Um, Ethiopia will be joining up with the BRICS Plus grouping very soon in January of 2024, joining Egypt, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, all major, major strategic nations for civilizational as well as geoeconomic reasons. Um, recently, the uh, the foreign minister of Nigeria said that he wants Nigeria to also join the BRICS within the next two years. The Sudanese ambassador to Russia said the same thing last week, uh, that Sudan must join the BRICS. What, what do you think of, as, of the BRICS's, the difference between the unipolar sort of structure, the way things have been, do, been done for the past 70 years, versus this idea that is sweeping across Africa of the BRICS, the multipolar alliance. A lot of people are saying it's all just a different, it's a different taste of empire. It's a better the devil you know. Let's just stick with the World Bank and the, the Western military industrial complex. We know that devil. We don't know this other devil. What do you, what's your opinion on this? Well, again, if, uh, if you look at, if you study this questions of geopolitics around the world, and what are the empires involved in, as, as you do as, and I do, you can see this stuff is very clear. Prior to the last BRIC summit, which just took place uh, a month or two ago, prior to the summit, you had all the major Western think tanks saying, don't expect anything. It's a nothing burger. There's nothing there. Don't get worked up over it. It's unimportant. So if you see, if you see all the Western think tanks saying that, you know, they're very much afraid of it. And of course, at mm -hmm. that meeting, they, they asked six more countries to join. So now there's 11 members of the BRICS, including Argentina now from the South America. Mm. Argentina is not jumping. Argentina is bailing out. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you have, you have uh, three of the nations are African nations. South Africa in the very south, East Africa in the east, Egypt in the north. So this changes everything. And the fact of the matter is, the African leaders, in one sense, are very practical. We are looking for assistance in developing our countries and our economies. We have asked the West, personally, come to the United States and say, can you work on an arrangement where we can make some long-term investments in our infrastructure? And the West says, no, 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 no. China says, yes, and China says, we'll give you better than commercial rates on some of the loans we give you. And they actually build something. They just don't take oil and gas and other resources. They build something, they leave something behind. And these loans are concessional, which is the lower interest rates, the long-term, some of them have grants to them. This has helped Africa. It's not enough, in my opinion, far not enough, but nevertheless, it's made a contribution to improving the conditions of life for some Africans. We still have 500 million Africans living in poverty. 
and we have 600 million Africans who don't have access to electricity. So there's no, no limit in the short term of the kind of investments we can make. But the United States says, nope, we don't really care about this development. We have one concern about Africa, stopping China. And there was an African summit here uh, in Washington back December, almost a year ago. And the only unspoken but not known topic of the summit was how to counter China in Africa. There's no other discussion that th these guys think about. Uh, and therefore, they don't have an understanding or a concern for how to develop these regions. The question is how to manipulate. Now, Abiy Ahmed comes in and he's a wild card. He's not part of the previous government, which was run by the uh, TPLF, the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. He's a totally new individual on the scene. He goes to Eritrea, he goes to Somalia, and they say to themselves, this guy's not under our control. He's out of our control. We can't let this happen. And so the United States supports, supports a war by the TPLF to overthrow the government of Ethiopia, including the prime minister. And they are marching to overthrow the government. And the United States is fully endorsing this. And I stepped in and fought it, and that caused a big fight and got me in a lot of trouble. But nevertheless, uh, it was a regime change effort which the US was supporting. Now, the United States is trying to insert themselves in a different way inside the government of Ethiopia. They were the only non-African entity who was at the uh, ceasefire uh, peace agreement in November 2022. Uh, Mike Hammer, the envoy for the U.S., was there. And I believe he was there because he wanted to maintain some semblance of support for the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. That is could be part of the problem today is that other countries in the region see the United States still has uh, some, has their snout in the politics of the region. And they may be well be trying to foster opposition to Eritrea because Eritrea is not under the control. They're totally outside of acceptance by the West. They're one of the most sanctioned countries in the world and they have survived. And they may be trying to manipulate Ethiopia into some conflict, I'm not sure. But the United States is involved in this operation. Uh, the remnants of the TPLF are involved in this operation. So there's a lot of moving parts to this. But what's clear is that there are outside forces that don't want stability, that don't want peace, and that don't want economic growth. And those I can, yeah. are the enemies of Africa. And, and we have to identify them and expose them. Yeah. No, it's, that's extremely important. And I remember not that long ago, there was a released uh, a recording of a Zoom meeting uh, with the Tigray People's Liberation uh, Army's representatives and high-level deep state operatives from the uh, from Washington. I think Donald Yu was the name of one of these characters, and I, I forget who, but there was a, a whole array of these very, very high-level operatives. Hmm? Yep. Uh, Donald Yamato was the was an ambassador there one time and but under trump or yeah he was the um acting assistant secretary of africa for a while yes yeah, so he was on it there was right. some european right. diplomats on it and it was supported by the national endowment of democracy <laughs>
Of course, and, of course it was. Of course it was. That was sort of that was the, uh, that was the no, tell, telltale sign of what was going on. Yeah, no, that that was very embarrassing for a lot of uh, Washington operatives, and uh, I think very very cleansing for a lot of people who had been drinking a lot of propaganda in the media about the the Tigray People's Liberation uh, Front being some sort of a freedom loving grouping uh, that wanted to resist authoritarianism of Abiy Ahmed. Um, very, very useful. So, I mean, the fact that you have all of these different points of evidence that to reference back to that there are foreign operations that are utilizing factional um, uh, differences, whether against Eritrea and Ethiopia or against the Tigray groupings in the north against uh, the government or against other, there's a, a lot of subgroups, right? And sub-ethnic uh, groups that are all being influenced by agencies far, far removed from the scene of the crime or the scene of the theater of battle, um, who ultimately don't care about anybody except themselves. And here we're talking again about the the city of London, the undead British Empire, as, as some have called it, uh, apparatus which didn't disappear after World War II and still exists in a very, very influential, though rebranded fashion today, even though people like John F. Kennedy uh, did stand up to it and did a lot that we need to learn from. And, and I'm, I'm bringing this up now uh, because as we go into, we're going to go into a commercial break, but when we come out of it, I'd like to discuss two things with you. Number one, um, the importance of JFK and the example that JFK set for a, a competent, sane, moral policy towards Africa. Um, what can we learn from? I know Haile Selassie, had um, a lot of optimism about JFK, and I think the the American U.S. Army Corps of Engineers even did feasibility studies for the Grand Renaissance Ethiopian Dam back in the 60s. That's an interesting thing. But also the debt trap diplomacy thing. So that's two big topics I'd like to tackle in the last 20-minute segment when we come back from a break is, is it true, as we've been told by the various uh, CNN, Fox, every other uh, talking head on on from think tanks that China is doing debt trap diplomacy? Uh, or are they not? And what was JFK? What's a sane American policy a la JFK? What would that look like? That Or what did it look like then? And what can it look like again in the future? So this is Connecting the Dots. We're going to go for a short break and we'll be right back. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The biggest weather news is what is about to happen in Europe. I saw another one of those pictures of Greta Thunberg protesting today. I guess today is like week 300 or something of the climate strike where kids are allowed to be truant and uh, you know to protest climate but she was all bundled up and i was like well wait a minute looks awfully cold over there and uh were there fossil fuels used in the making of those clothes that you have on but i want to get serious about this the fact that we are getting such a cold blast that is coming in and this was telegraphed with those big storms and the reason you see what's going on in the weather today is because all the weathermen start screaming and yelling about climate change instead of understanding the same thing happened in 2009 and they went into the deep freeze over there. But it's a serious situation. You know why? Well, first of all, the implications of that is that the United States is going to get very cold. Now, it's cold right now, but I'm talking about what could be really cold weather, severe cold, in the month of January. Because there's probably going to be a lot of snow in the United States during the month of December, especially after the 20th. So what we saw in 2009, 2010 was Europe got it in 2009 in December. 
And then the U.S. had their famous Snowmageddon, and that occurred later in January and February. It'd be a little bit earlier this year, probably, looking at the overall pattern. But think about this. You're going to get that grid in Europe tested now, and especially Germany. Germany looks like ground zero for the worst weather. With most snow, it's going to be a little bit colder relative to averages up where Greta lives. But Germany is going to be in bad shape here in the next 10 to 20 days. But again, then you have to worry about the rest of the winter. You see what I'm saying? So we're going to have some things push come to shove, so to speak, coming up here over the next couple of weeks. And in fact, the next couple of months, because unlike last winter, I don't think this is backing off this year. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee, and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Perception versus the truth. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Aaron on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Right. Well, we are back with Lawrence Freeman for our final segment here. Uh, a lot has been uh, brought up. I wanted to just roll out the end of this last uh, segment with a discussion first on JFK. It was the anniversary of his murder, a solemn day on the 22nd of November. JFK is often underappreciated for having, but he had a very strong and bold foreign policy, especially regarding um, his opposition to colonialism and his support for the aspirations for African independence. And for people who are thinking about, well, what would what would be a sane uh, policy for the West to adopt today? Well, look at well what worked and who tried to who did stop it when it was blossoming so so well in the early '60s under JFK and his allies. So. Larry, you you're you've done a lot of work on this. Maybe you could elucidate myself and, and our listeners to some of this story that uh, that we should know about. Well, it started actually in 1957. Uh, John F. Kennedy is a senator, and as he's the only U.S. senator who publicly makes a presentation on supporting the Algerian Revolution. So this is three years before he runs for president, and this was not. Uh, supported by anybody in the U.S. Congress at that time. And he put his he put his reputation in with the people trying to overthrow colonialism and build a better country for themselves. Now, when he comes into the office, takes office in 1961, he basically reshapes the entire foreign policy of the United States around Africa. Uh, Eisenhower had a completely standoffish approach supported the colonialist powers in Europe, said, let them take care of it, they know best. I don't think he met with that many African leaders during his eight years in office. And Kennedy says, nope, we're gonna change everything. 
He said, I'm going to go out and meet and, and engage with these African nationalist liberation leaders. And he had a program country by country, working with these leaders, didn't always go easy, wasn't always uh, had a happy course of action. There were ups and downs, but he made his commitment that he was going to stick with these nationalist leaders, that this was the future of the continent, was working with people who are now uh, trying to overthrow the yoke of colonialism and build their nation. And this was a complete break from uh, Truman and Eisenhower before him. And there's, you know, there's, there's some very large things that were done. For example, I think he's among people knowledgeable, the best thing was the Volta Dam, that he worked with Kwame Nkrumah to build a dam on the Volta River, which not only provided uh, electrical power, but it smelted the bauxite into aluminum. And this project would not have happened without John Kennedy because it was opposed by the British. And of course, Ghana was a British colony before independence. And I believe, I'm sure there's a plaque on that Volta project, which was completed in 1966, still honoring John F. Kennedy. And then to make wow. his position perfectly clear, the very first head of state that he invites to a head of state black tie formal dinner is Kwame Nkrumah over every other country in the world, not European, not Asian, African. And mm -hmm. this also made a very clear stamp on what his concerns were about policy. And then a couple of months later, it wasn't a head of state dinner, but he had the prime minister, newly prime minister of uh, Nigeria came to the United States, I believe in April or, or May. So he, very early on, Kennedy said, I'm going to work with the Africans. And this was a reversal of every policy prior to that. Roosevelt had indicated his support for Africa, but it never was a major foreign policy issue for him. It was a battle with the British over Africa. But uh, mm -hmm. Kennedy dug in and made it, and he told the State Department, and he put people in office in the, in the State Department as ambassadors, people who would agree with him, people who would work with him, and those many people tried to sabotage it, and he, he just, he kept with it. And it got dangerous, but he kept with it at various points. And you know, I, you I was listening to a record. I was just going to say, you mentioned the uh, survey. For reasons I don't know the history of, in 1957, Eisenhower had the uh, then USAID and Department of Interior did a six-year study of the Blue Nile region. So that's the Nile River inside Ethiopia, not uh, Egypt or Sudan. And they did a six-year study and they identified 30 different infrastructure projects in agriculture. And then they had four projects they identified that would produce uh, surplus electricity for Ethiopia to use and to export. Four dams they cited. One of those dams, which they called the Border Dam, is the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Now, Kennedy took over from Eisenhower and he brought the project to conclusion. Uh, and it was, I think it was finished in 63 and published in 64, seven volumes. But the fact that, that that was a point in time where the United States actually saw the benefits of working with Ethiopia. 
instead of this uh, yeah. support for the TPF in the war of a couple of years ago. And it shows mm -hmm. you the difference that a real political statesman can make on these kinds of foreign policy uh, fights. Absolutely. No, that, that's that's vitally important because uh, it's not uh, there. There's a, a lack of sense of what worked like because people get confused. They think, well, why would anybody want to keep Africa poor when it would be better business if you had people living longer, living healthier lives? They'd be more productive if they were industrialized in Africa because we would they would be selling finished goods to us to be consumers. We would be selling them finished goods as well. Higher quality goods. It would, we, we would make trillions of dollars. So why would anybody want to keep Africa underdeveloped, underpopulated, fighting itself when it's just bad business? And then you realize that the reason why that that's confusing for people is that they have this false belief that money is the motive for empire. And it's not that at all. Money is a tool or a, a, a means towards an end, but it is not the end unto itself. And JFK was getting it. Well, what is the real purpose? Because it involved money, it involved business. But it did involve an intention um, to reduce people to a slave status to keep them controlled. It didn't have that. It had a, a love of the potential of what Africa and what America could be by working together and bringing out the best. The uh, I know he was very disturbed when uh, when he got news that uh, uh, Lumumba, uh, the yes. president of Congo, that he had intended on meeting was murdered. Um yes very early on in his presidency um do you think that uh that he understood that it was through his own deep state department the Allen Dulles groupings that played a role or do you think he was naive to the the thing lurking within his midst at that time I it, you know I don't know uh I can't really say because it was really early on I mean uh Patrice Lumumba of course was the elected prime minister of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in June. And by September, he was removed from office. Uh, the British, uh, primarily, and the, the, the mineral cartels uh, used uh, the Katanga province to capture him and torture him and control him. And they, they virtually carried out a coup within months of his election. In January, he was trying to reach out. January is 1961. He was trying to reach out to Kennedy. He knew he was going to be murdered. And he wanted to reach Kennedy, and he thought Kennedy would uh, help him uh, survive and, and be able to be restored to leadership. He didn't. Kennedy did not find out about it until February. Uh, and when he found out about it in February, there was a photographer in the room who just happened to be taking a picture with, of Kennedy after this phone call. Yeah. And you mm -hmm. see the, the sadness and mm -hmm. the overtaking Kennedy's face when he learned that Lumumba had been, was killed a month earlier, because he saw Lumumba like he saw many of these people. It, what, it, you're right in terms of this is a natural money industrial, a money maker for industrial capitalism, but you also have to have a, a, a conception of mankind, humankind. And Kennedy saw Africans in a much more nobler way than any other leader in the United States had seen up to that point. And he identified with their struggle. There's a very unique quality. You don't really find it in everybody. But he had it. And he pursued it. And, and uh, how well he knew whether it was coming from inside his administration. I mean, ultimately, there were plans by the defense attache to murder uh, Lumumba. However, he didn't do it. 
um, I'm forgetting his last name, it's Larry something. And the British actually did it uh, because 10 years ago, uh, some secretary in the MI6 admitted that they were the ones who were really, really responsible for making sure Lumumba was assassinated. So the U, there was a side of the U.S. that was supporting it. It was actually the British who carried it out. Wow. Yeah. Always the British. Eh? I, I know that <laughs> there was a story from uh, David Talbot's Grand Chessboard uh, that my wife was was telling me about. And uh, when uh, Nkrumah got um, the Warren Commission report, he uh, opened up the first page and said, oh, Alan Dulles was on this commission. <laughs> That's all I need to know. <laughs> and yeah. he threw it aside. Uh, um, let's end, I'd like to end with your thoughts and assessments since we talked about now, um, what a sane policy that's, a, that's an authentic, honest policy based on authentic self-interest would look like and did look like, um, we got a certain, I have a, a certain idea of your view of the BRICS plus as a positive force. But again, many people say it is a debt trap diplomacy, new empire. China is just out to colonialize the world, just like the West did, but with their own Chinese characteristics. And they don't really intend to help anybody at the end of the day, except themselves, those selfish devils. Um, what can, can you respond to this debt trap diplomacy thing that we've all been barraged with? Is is there anything to it? Well, the, the point is, is absolutely zero. No way of comparing what the Chinese are doing under the Belt and Road and the BRICS to colonialism. I mean, colonialism was simply extracting wealth either through human labor or through resources. China is not doing that. And what they have done is actually provide the most essential quality that the African nations need, which is credit. And they started to get involved. They had been involved in Africa, of course, goes back to the 1400s with Admiral Xi. But the fact is, around 2000, they began to implement aspects of their infrastructure development program, which became the BRI in, in 2013. And this, the West was furious because here was a was China, who we think is our enemy, or the United States government thinks the enemy, and they were actually making, helping Africans to make progress. Now, the irony of this is is that it was a, one of the key institutions in the world that was following all of these loan agreements was something called the CARI Institute, C-A-R-I, China-Africa Research Institute, under the auspices of the John Hopkins University in Washington, D.C., run by a woman, Deborah Brottengang. And they have the biggest database of loans uh, in the world following, following the loans and disbursements of the loans in Africa. And so early on, I knew that this was a fraud, but everybody was saying, oh no, they're really, this is debt trap diplomacy. This is, they're really trying to force African countries into debt so that China can then seize those assets or seize other assets of the government or seize the project itself for their own benefit, which is actually absurd because China would not want to run African projects, but this was repeated. This group Cary came out and said no, and they wrote two articles a year. There is no debt trap diplomacy. There is no debt trap diplomacy. And when I would ask people, name me the country, I'll look into it for you. Name me the asset you think they took. Name me the project you think they took over. And here's where you see 
And this is a problem of, of American citizens. They're not thoughtful enough to investigate because everybody repeated this. My, my friends repeated it. All kinds of people repeated it. Hillary Clinton repeated it. President Biden repeated it. All congressmen, they would get up there and say, we have to stop this debt charge diplomacy. So these these people are total 100% idiots or they just want to lie because this Cary Institute right here in Washington was putting out the figures every year, twice a year. They would write an article explaining that this is not happening. So this is the problem. If you push this propaganda lie enough, people start to believe it. Now, whether all these foolish, stupid congressmen and women believed it, whether Joe Biden believed it, whether Blinken believed it, yet Janet Yellen repeated it when she was in South Africa last year. So we have a bunch of fools or liars that are elected officials. But what about us citizens? Why do we accept this? Why don't we investigate? Why don't we look into it? Why don't we say, hmm, isn't it strange that all of a sudden China is becoming the new colonizer and this is the number one enemy in the United States? So there's a real level of ignorance, of shrinking mm-hmm. of our intelligence capabilities. And the Congress gets away with it. They should have been called by the, the media should have said every time, what project, where, what's been taken over? And they, they don't have the courage to do this. So this is, an, this is an example of mass propaganda becoming truthful in the minds of, of people. And it, mm. it, is, it was a complete fraud. And it's a complete fraud today. If any people on this mm. show can tell me one project, one country that's been taken over, I'll, I'll check it out. It hasn't happened. <laughs> it never happened. Right. And I don't think the Chinese want it to happen. They want to get paid for the loans. No, that's the thing. Even if you... We're not saying that we have to attribute angel-like intentions to China. We're not saying that. But it's like if you look at the data, look at the evidence, there's a sense that the Chinese have a good, a, a, are doing good business, like just on that level. And I, I believe that there is a, a moral a moral property to this as well. But I mean, just if you want to reduce it just to basic, basic self-interest, this is more in their self-interest. It would be more in our self-interest as Westerners to have a healthy, vibrant world that appreciates us for having supported their aspirations for developing, that we do business with based upon common trust, and that we make creative changes for that allow us to overcome limits to growth by having more people at a higher quality of life, living longer, living happier, with better quality infrastructure, which the World Bank, the IMF, seriously never allowed at all. It's part of the IMF conditionality processes any infrastructure shall not benefit the people living in the recipient poor country. It will maybe just be used to facilitate the extraction needs of the the corporations that will go in and take ownership of the rights of the land, of the oil, of whatever, the cobalt that will go feed our cell phones and our electric cars or whatever else. But the idea of really developing, and you could just, the proof is in the pudding. Like you said, look at the data, look at the evidence. People make a general gossipy accusation don't just take it in because you might trust the source or experts say thus i must believe look and ask well why are you saying anonymous source who is the source what's the evidence is there a reduction or an increase in the quality of life of the people oh an increase how did that happen and and just dig it do, do a little bit more work because we're too used to being spoon-fed Lawrence, we, we've, we're rounding out to the end of the uh, the hour. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to shed light on your research, your work. I'm looking forward to having you back on. Where can people reach you? 
Best place is my website, lawrencefreemanafricaintheworld.com and my Twitter, at LK Freeman's Africa. I put more stuff up on my Twitter than my website, but you'll get a good idea of my thinking. And I put something up on John F. Kennedy just a couple days ago. All right, thank you, Larry. Thank you, and uh, tune in for Bruce Torres, who's coming up next on TNT Radio.